Welcome, aloha. Thank you for joining us on Think Tech Hawaii. <clears throat> Time for responsible change. And today we're going to talk about a broken criminal justice system, one of many broken systems. But <clears throat> since we're fix it people, maybe that's a good thing. Uh, or maybe it's not. We're going to talk about who it works for, who it works against, and maybe things that might help shift that balance in a better direction. Fortunately, today, we're happy to have you here with us, former Hawaii State Circuit Court Judge Sandra Sims, and brings a particular perspective, experience, and expertise to the criminal justice area, and has stayed active in a number of important reform areas. David Larson, immediate past chair of the American Bar Association Section of Dispute Resolution, and a field that really has not gotten as extensively into the broken criminal justice system as far or as much as it might be optimal to do. And Tim Apicello, who brings a business perspective and a fellow Think Tech host perspective to this. So, Sandra, David, Tim, thanks so much for joining us. Where would you like to start with what's broken or what's happening to fix it? Define the problem. Broken. There's a <laughs> lot broken. We don't we only have a half hour to. Yeah, right. <laughs> are you gonna are you gonna do? <laughs> I think we oh man, there's a lot broken. <laughs> And but there's a lot of stuff happening too. I, I, you know, there's, you know, me from my perspective is generally, I'm, you know, I think we 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 know enough about the problems and uh, potential solutions, but there are people in our respective communities that are addressing some of these issues in their own, sometimes quiet ways, but they're still getting things done. And I like to focus on those folks. And, and that's a really good point, Sandra, because it, you could make an, a virtually endless list of things that are broken from excessive incarceration, a lack of rehabilitative training for reentry, um, the need for a completely reformed justice system as well as prison system and, and many, many others and resistance from elements in the community. That's you know, one thing Sandra was talking about, things that are happening now, I think that in recent times, you know, within the last couple of years, there's been a recognition that maybe the appropriate people have not been responding to crises and that, you know, it isn't always a situation where we want to send armed police, that maybe we need people with different skills. So mm -hmm. I think that that's a positive thing. The understanding that, um, when troubling circumstances are occurring, that we need to think about who we're dispatching to respond to those circumstances. And I think we're doing some much better critical thinking about that. That being said, then we have to provide staffing for those positions, which is a right. you know another question. Another, another um, you know, do we have the money? Do we have the people? But at least the recognition that maybe in the past we haven't always sent the right people, I think, is a healthy thing. Mm -hmm. oh, that's a great insight, David, because mm -hmm. as 
hopefully we've all recognized, hey, in a conflict situation, if your first responders are armed forces, yeah, that may not be your best first option. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Tim, your thoughts? I'd like to jump in on that because, you know, I keep thinking back to the L.A. riots and um, uh, police, chief Ga- police chief Gates, you know, had all the finest oh, okay. weaponry, uh, military-style weaponry, style of, you know, uh, uniforms. The only problem is when you start to look like the military, you start to act like the military. And, um, you know, I like to see maybe our law enforcement wear Aloha wear uh, now and then on the streets of Waikiki. But that's, that's just me. That's a thought. That's a thought. Yeah. I mean that that that's, that kind of that kind of scenario developed in St. Louis, uh, in the in the uh, previous rise. That's when they brought in all that military equipment. It just sort of kept escalating things. So each night it got worse because you got bigger trucks coming in. So the I guess you you know the good point is the militarization militarization of police departments has kind of. Uh, much to David's point as well, kind of added to the tension. But we're starting to maybe take a look at doing some things differently, like David has pointed out, and making a better response sometimes, not always, still not there yet, uh, as to who's going to be responding uh, to these situations and in what manner they're going to respond. I mean, what COVID has showed us is we got a whole lot of people with um, mental health issues, that we have just not addressed at all. And they've been locked up in their homes or wherever they were for the last couple of years, and they're coming out and, whoa. Yeah, that, that idea of sending the, the appropriate people, um, you know, another, another positive of that is that sometimes people won't even call law enforcement because they're afraid they're gonna get kind of yeah. the one kind of response. And they're afraid of that kind of response. And for a variety of reasons, and if you're in an underrepresented population, you may be even more afraid of what that response will be. So you don't call at all, and then the situation continues to spiral out of control. So, you know, another positive to to assigning the right people to come is that people will be more willing to call for help because that fear factor um, might go away, at least might be diminished. Yeah, that's true. That's true. You know, and this brings out that it it really puts law enforcement leadership in all areas um, in really, really difficult positions. They may not have the resources, either financially or the human resources. They may not have the support. They may be lacking a lot of what they need to be able to respond appropriately to conflict situations that threaten violence but need not necessarily be the best to respond to with violence. And understaffing right now is a huge problem. Um, I know up here in the Twin Cities, we're down well over 100 officers in Minneapolis alone. Um, So when it comes to allocations and assignments, um, it's difficult. Um, We've had a lot of problems on light rail, for instance. Um, And our light rail system is is an honor system. You know, anybody can get on and walk on. You're supposed to you're supposed to pay. Do you oh. always pay? Well, people aren't always paying. Um, and it's become a haven now for a lot of home. I mean, we were talking earlier before, before the program about Minnesota weather. It's been a very harsh winter. So one place yes. you can seek a refuge from that winter is on the light rail. 
So people are just coming down the light rail and you know, kind of making that their home and been a lot of open drug use and a lot of problems. And because of the short staffing, um, those problems have not, not been addressed. So another current problem is, is staffing. Um, and again, in the Twin Cities, we had the murder of George Floyd and some appropriate negative criticism of what was going on with the police force. Well, for a lot of people who might be considering a law enforcement career, they're saying, I don't want any part of it. Yeah, yeah, not me. Yeah. And it's like our, yeah. our parents telling their, you know, their high school graduates, um, you know, and their college graduates says, this is where you should go. This is where you should take your life. And they aren't saying that. And the parents are not encouraging their kids and people are making those choices themselves. That's a, I, I've thought about that as, as we think about what's going to happen in the future in terms of people going into things like law enforcement, even, you know, even the military is, there's this, there's this thing, there's this fear, not a fear, but there's just not a, a, um, a willingness or an interest or desire to, uh, among many, and a lot of parents to have their, uh, you know, kids, you know, go into those kind of fields. So, are we, and, and teaching as well. Now that we're, yeah. th- now that we're mentioning it, teaching as well. So, we got to figure out some things to, to address that as well. Um. Yeah, that's a tough one. That's, that's, you know, I, go ahead. Well, I grew up with a lot of uh, police police chiefs in the Pacific Northwest area of Washington State, Seattle area. And um, one of my dear friends that I grew up with uh, recently retired in the last couple of years as a police chief. And he said, you know, it's the fear that you, you're, you're going to be a police officer on the streets, but you also have to be trained almost as an attorney. And really watch everything you know that's said and done, and and to a certain degree that's true. But yet we need we need that uh, that ability that our police officers are cognizant of the law that they enforce, but also the ramifications um, by enforcing it in a poor or you know uh, incorrect manner. So it's it's yeah. you know it's a double edged sword as far as recruitment and retainment. Yeah, yeah, and some and also addressing. Um, you know, the mental health crisis, you just don't know what kind of situation you're walking into. And as you both have pointed out, just the use of the, the force to do it is not going to always be the situation, be the right response when you're dealing with someone who may be, you know, on drugs or uh, particularly in a, in, a, in a mental health breakdown kind of situation. And we've seen some of that around the country. And even, you know, even here in Honolulu, we've had some situations yeah. where clearly there was something else going on uh, and the response was the force and the force escalates and we miss out on, and not that they got to be trained to be, um, you know, psychiatrists and social workers, but there's still that element of some of that training has to take place. I know Maui at one point, a few years back was kind of on the somewhat of a cutting edge in addressing those issues by having their officers, you know, trained to respond, uh, sort of a first responder to uh, identifying, potentially identifying a mental health crisis as well. And I don't know, I'm not sure if they're still doing that, but they were certainly doing it for a while and were doing it well enough that they were being called upon to uh, assist other departments in addressing it, you know, and and, and learning those responses. Uh, So, yeah. You know, yeah. it's just a shame that how language kind of shapes our thinking. And if you recall, the, the term defund the police kind of won the political 
star of the day. And, but, and the term stuck, you know, maybe it would have been better if it was supplement the police and supplement yeah. them with mental health counselors and, you know, things of that nature. But unfortunately, language, once it takes hold, um, it defines the playing ground. And people don't think about the implication. They just, you know, you just go by the soundbite. And I think and even in those those that espouse that position of defunding, what they were really talking about is shifting some of the resource to some of these other uh, issues that police departments have to learn to address. And it wasn't about taking, well, I, I don't, don't, I'm not the one to, <laughs> to, to speak for all, but I think, and it, and like you say, the, 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 the term got hijacked into meaning, mm -hmm. you know, let's not have police. And that's not, and that's not at all what, you know, the communities are asking that we don't have it at all. We just want to have a way in which we respond to situations that helps us to deescalate um, potential violence and those kinds of, uh, you know, increased confrontation. So I don't know, just. Well, you know, in terms of improving the police, um, one thing that I think also is improving is that there are efforts to um, improve diversification and recruitment. Mm -hmm. And um, then this year in the Twin Cities, uh, we, the legislature devoted $400,000 to a Pathways to Policing program that okay. will provide reimbursement for wages and salaries and training and tuition and books for people that um, want to get law enforcement degrees. But the focus being we would like to change the face of our police department, make it look a little bit more like the people that are being policed. Um, that goes not just for race and color, but also for gender. The number of women in police forces is quite low in many places, single digits. And even worse, when you go up into the bureaucracy and the leadership positions, very small percentage, maybe 3% nationally. Mm -hmm. So uh, another thing police forces are thinking about in terms of improving the delivery of the service they provide is that maybe if we change our demographics, change the face of our force, maybe it'll be better received. Maybe it'll be more attentive to the cultures and communities and maybe we can do a better job. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm -hmm. hopefully. You know, I, I think it kind of goes almost hand in hand with what you just said, David, is is the visibility of police. And, you know, this the concept of, the old concept of community policing that's on foot versus a patrol car, um, your visibility of your diversity that you've retained or, or you've hired and trying to retain is, is so much better if you're, you know, actually on, on foot. But, you know, you're dealing with environmental factors, uh, heat, cold, rain, snow. Uh, it's tough to be a cop on the beat. And um, but there there lies the dilemma. Yeah. Of course, oh, well. that's quite the issue of, you know, the, the snow and sleet and being on the beat in, in Waikiki or so. But still, it's a it's it's still tough. I, I, I don't it's a tough job regardless. Yeah, can I get, We've got to okay. find ways to, I mean, our, our police force obviously is, you know, inherently diverse because kind of has to be, uh, but that alone is not going to always be enough when you don't have that sort of training and focus on addressing some of these other means to respond. And that's, that's a, that's an important piece. Um, yeah. I don't know if I, I ever lived this experience, 
It certainly was in movies that I watched where you had a neighborhood officer who was always in that neighborhood, got to know the neighborhood, um, neighborhood got to know that officer. There was a very different personal relationship there than I think we have in most circumstances today. I don't know if a lot of communities have that kind of relationship. Officer friendly. <laughs> no. That's what he was. <laughs> yeah. Showing my age. <laughs> Actually, you know, I, you know, I, I grew up in Chicago, you know, South Side. It was a, you know, Chicago segregated. It was a black community, but it was, you know, people knew each other, and and there actually there weren't a lot of black police officers, but uh, there was enough of a community presence of you know people who were concerned about what we children were doing <laughs> that, that there was that sort of inherent policing where the, the the most severe threat you could make to a child was, I'm going to call your mother. <laughs> <laughs> Does your mother know you're here? <laughs> it's like, don't do that. Please don't. No, not, not my mother. No, but uh, I'm just being facetious. But there was something about that because you have this community, a sense of community. And that, in many ways, is as big a deterrent to violence to criminal behavior as having you know these you know enhanced police departments that sense of community where everybody feels connected and a part of that that's a critical piece i think that we've kind of lost a lot um well covid certainly contributed to that oh god yes I mean, we didn't go outside you oh, know god, we didn't yes. meet in in the common places we're used to meet uh we didn't meet on the street we were all staying inside um, if yeah. we saw someone, we stayed a distance away from them because we didn't know if they were infected. So yeah. I think that that con they contributed to the dissolution of oh, community. Absolutely, absolutely. And I and, I, and like I said, when you you know people are coming out and they've been in this isolation, they're just you know they got all kinds of issues to deal with as well. I mean, you have some sort of spark that you know gets things in the going in the wrong direction, and and there we are. Um, I do want to share a positive thing about, you know, this isn't police, but it's about our uh, incarceration. I attended a recent event, um, part of that women's prison project, where Chuck and I have talked about this before, where it's directed at um, make, uh, looking at programs for women who are incarcerated. And just recently, there was a tremendous um, effort put on by our former Governor Linda Lingle, actually, to bringing together these great folks to to push for these changes. And there was a housing project that was um, provided by the city, you know, in partnership with others at Maholomai. It's a residential um, building that was converted to house women who are being recently released from prison um, and uh, are housed there as they began to make the adjustment back into um back into life it's got all kinds of resources available to it uh you know working with all the different city departments and state agencies and and grants from private groups uh that were a part of it it was quite an amazing an amazing event it was quite amazing the building is very very nice and so you brought to i mean she was able to bring together um, you know, city, state, of course, she was a former governor. I guess you could call people and they will say, yes, <laughs> you need that ability too. But 
but it was it's it was you know quite a quite a positive experience and uh it really bodes well for the for the future at least in terms of what we're doing with women who are incarcerated and it's hard to overlook the impact of having women incarcerated because they have their incarceration and their issues and their trauma affects a bigger segment of the community than than anyone else because most of them in fact all of them at women's correctional facility had children and so you have that ripple effect of you know children who are away from a parent and who are already in a situation of trauma because of that and you need to be able to address all of those situations so that was that was that was important yeah the, fo- the focus on moving away from punitiveness to support you know yes. somebody comes out of prison and you give them some you know, give them the personal items back and say good luck um you know and that's we get recidivism um you know the whole idea that if anybody anybody coming out of prison probably needs somebody to hold their hand and give them Absolutely. some support to get reintegrated Absolutely. So if we really want to prevent crime, maybe you want to make sure we support people when they come out to make sure they don't they don't lapse back. So what Sandra is describing, I think, is is wonderful. And that's exactly the kind of thing we need. Absolutely. It was it was quite inspiring, I'll tell you. And they had I'd like to see some some employment employment um, reform as far as to what degree or to what crimes or convictions uh, or sentences served that um, are scrubbed from your background check. Um, mm. You know, that is the greatest deterrent to getting ahead is finding a decent job that my background mm. or my conviction is preventing me from performing. Absolutely. And Absolutely. I, I just think we're way behind uh, on that one. And, 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 and don't get me wrong. I think there are some crimes that you just employers and the community need to know about, but, there's so many more that they don't need to know about, and I'd, I'd like to see some reform in that area. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is there is legislation being passed, and it's slowly growing. You know, it's called ban the box legislation, where, yeah, yeah, where it's the yeah. application form, and you got to check you ever been arrested, ever been convicted, um, to say that you can't have that. And um, what you can might be able to do if you've got a conviction for a violent crime, such as murder in the last seven years. You might be able to ask that kind of question. So not necessarily elimination of all questions, as Tim is saying. There might be some things we still want to know about, but but to be very discreet mm-hmm. about what people are able to ask and don't make it just a generic checkbox that then takes somebody off the employment rolls. Exactly. 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 And the other issue was also having uh, one of the things that came up was when you're releasing someone, like you said, with the bag of stuff you brought in. And you don't have like uh, uh, an ID or particularly a state ID or driver's license or something that identifies you. You can't, you almost can't do, not almost, you can't do anything. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> you know, I was going to say, and you can't vote, you know, and you want, you want people to feel like they're back to life and yeah, you just, part of the community. And so there was yeah. another piece of legend that that, uh, that was kind of looking at making certain that one of the pieces that we do is make certain that people have an ID. And this is not just for women, but for, you know, men who are being inmates who are being released, make certain they have ID or access to get an ID immediately upon their release. So they can at least begin the process of finding their way back into 
into society. You need, yeah. There's a, there's a, I, I think there is, I, there's something to be said, Tim. You raised a good point about, you know, having some focus on being more, um, um, you know, being more selective about the notion that a person has a criminal background determining whether or not they should be employed or not. I mean, not everything means that you can't work. Um, yeah. I think that's a big. Well, and those are important things to understand because a good friend who's actually a very respected mediator in the LA area started a program pro bono years ago, which basically got people together, volunteers, to work with people in prisons on building up communications, attitudes, and behaviors just to build relationships. It's what we all do in our lives. It's the key to the opportunities and the choices that we have. Why would it not be for people whose choices and and opportunities are far more limited and restricted? Mm -hmm. Exactly as you said, in all areas, housing, employment, education, healthcare, everywhere they go, it's going to be a restriction, an obstacle, a deterrent. And the attitude they come out with because of that is going to impact that. And that may be the more important thing to address, uh, among the more important things to address, is because you know, we are, we're in this place now where there is such, um, I guess, division on, you know, your criminals versus non-criminals. And mm -hmm. we're prepared to just lump everybody into that, into one category. Uh, whereas I, I, I think from my experience, I still hold to the belief that much of crime that's committed is situational, you know, aside from the, you know, the trauma and the drugs. It's people make wrong decisions in, in those moments. Uh, they're affected by other things. And of course, you know, people who are victimized by this, that's not to minimize what happens to them because that's an, that's an important consideration as well. I think we can't ignore that. Um, but I think we have to get to a place of where we're kind of doing some balancing and understanding that, you know, the person who is, um, you know, convicted of violent assault or, 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 you know, murder or distributing, you know, dangerous drugs or trafficking is in a different category than that person who may have just, you know, lost their job, been traumatized by something, and just in a moment does something that they would not ordinarily do that happens to be a crime. And we can't just keep lumping them all together. I mean, I did, honestly, there are some folks who just basically need to be incarcerated. Yeah, one of the periods of time. I mean, let's just be honest. That does exist. That you know, when we're talking about all these reforms, we're not suggesting that everybody needs to, you know, walk out and some need to be there and need to stay and don't ever need to come out. And we know who they are, but that's not everybody. And it's actually a a, a relatively small percentage of those who are incarcerated. One other thing I wanted to mention as you're closing out here is that uh, another area where I think that we've had real problems, but things are improving, is in terms of accountability. And Tim mentioned this a little earlier. Um, you know, I think in particular that a lot of progressive discipline systems in law enforcement agencies have, have culminated in arbitration, and those arbitration proceedings have been confidential. Um, 
the arbitrators have been typically just recycled and recycled. Um, there have been a number of sheriffs have been tremendously frustrated that when they've tried to impose discipline, it goes to arbitration yeah. and they immediately get reinstated. So I think that one good thing that's happening is that people are looking hard at those arbitration systems mm -hmm. and trying to make them a little more transparent, trying to make the pool of arbitrators larger to mm -hmm. make it more diverse and kind of open up that end of it. Mm, yeah, yeah. That's another one too, yeah. Because the public doesn't trust, they don't trust that if they bring something, there's going to be any, you know, any accountability, anything you know, happening with it. At least no one knows what they're doing and we don't expect that they're going to address it. Uh, that, that's a great thought. Okay, any last thoughts, Tim? Yeah, um, I didn't mention it, but I'd really love to see more parity between of financial resources dedicated uh, between the prosecution side of the equation versus the public defender side of the equation. And I know public defenders are horribly overtaxed and overworked. And um, there's a part of me that says resources need to be uh, dedicated to ensure that everyone gets the proper representation and most importantly, the time for representation. And so that's an area I'd like to see a little more parity uh, applied. Well, that's and that's a, a good one. point. Yeah, that's that's a very tough one. To get, it's all about financial <laughs> resources. Yeah. And, and, and the public perception is that we don't want to, there's still that notion out there that we don't want to, um, you know, we don't want to fund the pay for the lawyers that are representing, quote, criminals. There's still that. There's a lot of that. There's know? a lot of that. And it's, I won't say it's cruel, but it's cruel. Yeah, it, 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 it is. It is. It is. It is. Uh, I, I think, yeah, you don't have to explain it. It is wrong. <laughs> yeah. David, any last thoughts? Yeah, like, you know, we, you know, I think there is a, a sentiment and a recognition that we need to think even harder about the roots of crime, um, you know, and less about punishment. And uh, yeah, I might encourage a little bit as our technology continues to improve that one thing I don't think we've been as good at as we may have been is trying to correlate the social experiments and policies that we've in implemented with results. I don't I don't think we've done as good of a job as we could have. And I think that that then makes those those programs subject to attack and criticism. People say, well, let's yes. stop because you can't prove what you did. And I think that maybe with new technology and data tracking and things like that, if we're creative about how we use the technology, maybe we can do a better job of both designing those programs and proving that they work. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Excellent. Great thoughts. Thank you all so much. We're out of time for today, but just to leave everyone with a thought coming from this and listening to all you all came to mind, wouldn't it be wonderful if somehow we could reform and engineer our criminal justice system and the society's connection with it in a way that enabled people to come out of it with the confidence that they could relate harmoniously with people. They knew how to do job interviews and scholarship application interviews to go back to school, <clears throat> housing interviews to get a place to live all of those things, and that people in the society would be able to make attitudinal shifts to be able to welcome those opportunities and say, yeah, I'll meet you halfway on that. Yeah, yeah. 
What a thought, huh? Thank you all so much. It can happen. Tech Hawaii, Sandra Sims, David Larson, Tim Apicella. Thanks for your thoughts, perspectives, and insights. Come back and join us. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. Thank you so much for watching Think Tech Hawaii. If you like what we do, please like us and click the subscribe button on YouTube and the follow button on Vimeo. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, and donate to us at thinktechhawaii.com. Mahalo.